The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world in America. The rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to Cars and Culture. I'm Automotive News Publisher Jason Stein in Detroit. If the open road is a metaphor for life, Ed Robertson, the lead singer of the Bare Naked Ladies, has been up and down and left and right on his own musical journey. The experience has been a wild ride. Born in the Toronto suburbs to a working-class family, Robertson valued a good work ethic, dedication to a craft, and the ability to out-hustle everyone else, especially in the music industry. The college crowd that globbed onto the Bare Naked Ladies in the 90s created a pathway for success in their home country. And success was immediate, as BNL, as they came to be known, developed a cult following in Canada, with their self-titled 1991 cassette becoming the first independent release to be certified gold in that country. If I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, I'd buy you a house. They reached mainstream success in Canada when their debut album, Gordon, featured the singles If I Had a Million Dollars and Brian Wilson. That was released in 1992. And just as soon as they had dominated the Canadian music scene, fame was fleeting and their star was fading. And then came this. It's been one week since you looked at me. Not many Canadian bands cross over into an American success story, but BNL's fourth studio album, Stunt, sent them soaring. The album featured their highest charting hit, One Week, as well as It's All Been Done. It was a wild ride, sold-out shows, global success, the sky the limit. With a raucous, fun, entertaining style, BNL was destined for amazing things. Until yet another twist and sharp turn in the road. They aren't bare naked and uh, they aren't ladies. What they are is minus a front man. Stephen Page has announced he's leaving the bare naked ladies. The group is one of the most popular bands to ever come out of Canada. They've sold millions of records. But as Sandra Abma reports, without one of their distinctive voices, BNL could be SOL. When lead singer Stephen Page dropped out of the band in 2009, the road took a sharp detour, and the band members, led by Robertson, regrouped and powered on. Success has followed. And detours have been aplenty for a band that has sold 15 million albums worldwide. Fitting, then, that their latest album, number 16 in their collection, is called Detour. De force. There have been so many detours, and BNL is indeed a force. Today, releasing their COVID album has taught them many lessons about teamwork and creating new sounds, and Robertson is reflective now 30 years after the first hits. BNL has shaped their own culture, and Robertson is a car guy, the owner of numerous unique vehicles that are as diverse as BNL's mix of hooks and melodies and interesting lyrics. Cars, records, breakups, and pinball machines. Ed Robertson, lead singer of BNL, is my guest on Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. Well, Ed, welcome to the show. I'm happy to have you as a guest. It's a pleasure to meet you. I'd say pinch me, but that's way too obvious. Oh, come on, Jason. <laughs> Congratulations on the new album, Detour de Force. 16, 33 years. How is this possible? There's no way it's 33 years for you. Well, I know I'm only in my late 30s myself now, so how is it possible I have 16 records? Uh, yeah, man, uh, what a ride! I'm I'm very excited about this new record. It was it was quite a ride to make because you know the whole world went into lockdown halfway through this record. Um, it was it actually ended up being a a, a plus for us. It gave us time and perspective to listen to what we were making and see how we could strip away some things and, and, and build up some other things that I'm actually, you know, I know that this was a really difficult period for a lot of people, uh, but, but it really helped my record. 
how hard is it to make a record during I mean you start and you stop you you know the 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 proverbial pandemic pause and you got to get back at it but but from what I understand it it made it better right because you could listen to what you had already put down and maybe you got off the hamster wheel to some extent yeah and that's a good that's a good description of what happened really we we've never afforded ourselves any time for reflection because mm. we tour like madmen and then you know making records is expensive so we're always super tight budget wise and we we rehearse for a record and we go in and burn it off and i've always thought that a record should be more like a snapshot than an oil painting and you know just get the stuff down and so you can get back out live and start playing the material. Um, this time we had no choice, but to sit with the material in yeah. its early stages for a long, long time. We had, we had really just finished the bed tracks and a couple of overdubs um, when we had to hit pause. And I think this record really benefited from that shift in perspective and the time to to really reflect on what we had and where we might want to take it had we just barreled forward and finished the record it would be a completely different record than what we ended up with. will it will it change the way that you approach recording going forward probably yeah i i mean i prefer what we ended up with here uh, and so I, I think it will definitely influence how we do things in the future. It's an amazing uh, feat to, to have to endure this like the rest of the world while trying to continue working. And of course, you just mentioned it as well. You, like many other musicians, couldn't be on the road. You're not, you're not yeah. seeing people. You're not interacting. That had to be, it still must be, um, just continue, uh, just a, a, a real challenge for you, a continued challenge. Well, I would encourage people to not shed a single salty tear for the guy from Bare Naked Ladies <laughs> who has had a ridiculously successful run. And this pandemic pause was definitely uh, not what I would have wanted. And I miss playing live. And, you know, it was weird, but I was fine. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people had a, had real struggles. They they worried about providing for their families. They were worried about getting sick. They were, you know, there were real struggles happening throughout this pandemic. And mine, uh, I was inconvenienced, <laughs> um, and and that's about all. So yeah, I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spend any time complaining because. Uh, I, I got to, to spend a, an enormous amount of time up at my lake spot here and spend time with my family. It made my record better. It gave me a ton of time to reach out to people. We did our selfie cam jams and we were able to point to a lot of different charities and help people out where we could. So a lot, you know, a, a lot of my friends that really rely on that live income um, and and touring, uh, they really struggled through this pandemic. So, I I will not uh, I will not even pretend that my struggle compares. For sure, yeah. A lot of young artists who um, thought that maybe you know pre March of twenty that they were on their way to setting a, a career path, you know, obviously altered, hugely yeah. altered. Yeah. Yeah. Um. When. When you think about being out there and, and, and doing live recordings in the future, similar to my hamster wheel question, will, will you reconsider the amount of time that, that you spend on the road going forward because of COVID? Well, uh, fortunately for me, uh, I still love what I do. Um, you know, so we're going to continue to tour and probably tour more than we need to because we love to do it. Yeah. And uh, so I think we have a new appreciation as, as everybody does for what's important about life and, and 
how you relate to people and how you appreciate the things you have um, because we all got a glimpse of not having those things. Um, but we just got, we just did our first show back uh, last weekend. We played for 10,000 people in New Jersey. How was that? And uh, it was amazing. It was like, it was a total blast. Um, but I knew it would be, it was like, uh, you know, we, we have a lot of fun live. We're, that's one of, that's part of the heart and soul of this band is you the do. live shows. You so do. You're great I've entertainers. Missed that. Mm-hmm. I've missed that and we got to do it again. <laughs> so, oh, that's great. And I'm playing in uh, Wisconsin next weekend. So um, slowly coming back. We're not out on tour yet, but we've got the odd show here and there. Things are slowly returning to normal. What's the hardest thing about getting back on stage after 20 months away? Is it that you got to hit the right chords? Uh, <laughs> you know, we played three new, three songs from Detour de Force in the set uh, last weekend. And uh, it's a lot of lyrics, honestly. Like, just remembering new arrangements and remembering, particularly this, this record is very dense lyrically. We played New Disaster, Good Life, and Flip. That's, like, that's more lyrics than the entire last Blue Rodeo record. Wow. Um, on those three <laughs> songs alone. In your face, Jim Cuddy. <laughs> you also, I mean, you've been doing an increased amount of writing through the years. And I think, you know, part of the advice that, that you got was, um, or, or, or the path you tried to follow was, instead of trying to write one great song, you're committing yourself to writing a certain number of ideas, maybe parts of songs that fit together. And I'm guessing, and, and the lyrics on the new album are, at times, really heavy. Is this our 1960s moment, you know, kind of peace, love, and pandemic? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, that, that advice from a long career of writing songs, that's about how to avoid writer's block. Because essentially, if you're always trying to write your heartbreaking work of staggering genius then it just adds a layer of pressure that's completely unnecessary. Um, For me, it's about the process and just continuing to write, continuing to try and hone in on ideas, um, express emotions, experience some catharsis. You know, what is this thing that's been nagging me? Maybe if I can articulate this struggle Maybe it'll help me and maybe it'll help somebody else. Um, Writing for the sake of writing. Um, You know, this whole record was written pre-pandemic, although some of the songs feel oddly specific to the experience of the pandemic. I'm I'm thinking about New Disaster and and Flip um, in particular. But... uh, I think it's because, you know, those things that everybody struggles with, there there are commonalities there. And I think the pandemic heightened a lot of them, but it, it, it put us into be forced to reckon with things that we all struggle with all the time. You write and you talk about, or you have talked about, that this, this wondrous technology that we have, which should be uniting and enlightening us, is actually tearing us apart. And that's referenced throughout the album. Yeah. I mean, I, it's a combination of things. The, the way social media has amplified um, misinformation and conspiracy theories. And um, instead of, you know, uh, presenting people with, uh, better information it's isolating people into these silos of groups of people that all have it wrong and it kind of fortifies their position and their belief that they're the only ones that have it right and then they're fed through the algorithm more misinformation when you couple that to the 24-hour news cycle and particularly 
uh, in a year of very bad news. Um, it was a really difficult year for a lot of people mentally. And I think, you know, if people haven't seen that recent documentary, The Social Dilemma, I, I really highly recommend it mm -hmm. because it, it gives you some real insight into what's going on here in terms of the social media discussion. But it really is kind of putting the ball back in the court of big tech saying, you know, you have created and facilitated this problem. It's on you to figure it out. Right. Because people are not going to get themselves out of the rabbit hole. They're in there. They're fortified. They've, they've made bunkers and sandbags around it. And they're convinced everyone's out to get them. Um, so we've got to figure out a way to help those people and ridiculing them, whether it's flat earthers or uh, 5G or chip implantations in the vaccines. You know, those aren't stupid people. They're people that have fallen down a hole of misinformation and they're, they're being led down the garden path uh, by not a sinister hand, but uh, an algorithm an that algorithm. is bent on mm -hmm. engagement. Engagement is all that matters. And the catastrophe that ensues is unimportant to the algorithm. Fascinating. Lots of stuff to write about in your songs and reference. You, the first record you bought, Kenny Rogers, The Gambler, $4.98. You're, you're a country right. guy, aren't you? Yeah, I, you know... I really, um, I was really captivated by the stories told in country songs. Um, and Kenny Rogers my, had great, he told great stories. The Gambler yeah, is one absolutely. example. <laughs> yeah, The Gambler, The Coward of the County, like these harrowing stories. And I'm, I'm a nine-year-old kid uh, just learning to play the guitar. Um, I was absolutely, absolutely captivated by Kenny Rogers and, and John Prine and Neil Young and um, a lot of earlier country stuff, too. My parents listened exclusively to country radio in the home and in our cars. Um, Some good Merle Haggard, maybe. Yeah. Uh, Merle Haggard, Willie Nelson. Um, also you know, great storytellers. Yeah. Phenomenal and, storytellers. And so that's why I wanted to play guitar hmm. was to captivate people with a story in a song. And um, it, it wasn't, you know, there's a cheesy side of pickup trucks and old dogs. And uh, there's that side of country. Which Here's is a quarter. Little, call someone who cares. Yeah, there's a there's a cheesy side of that. But there's a beautifully emotionally. Uh, exploratory side that writers like Dolly Parton and and Willie Nelson get to that just tap right into the heart of identity and and uh, insecurity and uh, loyalty and uh, what it means to belong and um, I was I was hooked at a young age and it's it's been a huge influence on my writing. But you didn't become a country artist. You became a pop rock artist who, with you know, great hooky lyrics and, and wonderful ballads. Uh, not country ballads, but kind of rock ballads. So why not a country guy? I didn't have the voice to, to <laughs> be a country singer. It's that simple. Like <laughs> the, the quality of the barrier to entry in country music is unbelievable those the it's another caliber of singer and i and i wasn't there <laughs> um i still love the music though uh especially classic country stuff i i still put on willie nelson and and lyle lovett and buck owens like the, those are those are on high rotation for me the bare naked ladies did something that most canadian bands really good canadian bands can't do which is break into the united states it's a popular theme um, I, I can think of some great ones, the real statics, lowest of the low, Joel Plaskett, even the tragically hip could, you know, they would fill the Air Canada Center, formerly known as the Air Canada Center with 20,000 people. And then they would play, um, you know, a small town in Western Michigan for 500. Yeah. Why? Well, 
I get asked the question all the time, like, why did you guys make it and the hip didn't? And the answer is simple. We're way better than those guys. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's uh, Gord Downey was one of the greatest front men ever in any genre of music. Um, Lead singer, the tragically hip. Incredible poet and lyricist and absolutely captivating frontman. Uh, anyone who was lucky enough to see the hip with Gord uh, is richer for the experience. And, Intoxicating, really. Yeah, and it was, a, it was a conundrum for me, just like it was for everyone else, why the hip weren't bigger outside of Canada. But at the end of the day, it happens all the time. Like it, you know, we became really popular in America because we worked our asses off. Yes. But also there was an enormous amount of good luck and crazy timing. Like it just, it happens for some people and it doesn't, it's not because we're better performers or better writers, or we had better songs. It just happens for some people, and for some people, it, it just doesn't. The Big and Bang Theory I, theme changed your life. Big Bang Theory changed my life after my life had already been changed multiple times. Like, you know, we'd, we'd already been one of the biggest bands ever in Canada. Then, in the late 90s, we had a Billboard number one single and sold 10 million records and toured all over the world. Uh, and then almost 10 years after that, I write a song, a theme song for a television show that I don't even know if it's going to go into production when I write the song. And it ends up being one of the biggest uh, sitcoms of all time, you know? So it's such a weird thing because I had already had a full career and then all of a sudden along comes a song which has been like having a hit song twice a year for the last 10 years for me <laughs> and you also chronicled some of that the the roller coaster of that in pinch me when you really did some self reflection on fame and fame being fleeting yeah and despite the fact that we had kind of had a dress rehearsal for it with our Canadian success in the early 90s, which then waned. Um, when Stunt exploded in the late 90s in America and around the world, I knew it was going to go away because I'd, I'd, it had happened before, you know? Yeah. So I tried to prepare myself for that. You know, the best part of a roller coaster is always the ride down anyway. So I kept <laughs> joking to the other guys. Um, when we were on top of the world, I was like, well, guys, keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle because we're about to go downhill. Wow. <laughs> you know? That's the culture part. Let's talk about some cars, Ed. Yeah. You're, I you're... thought this was a car show, Jason. <laughs> you're a lover of a wide variety of vehicles. You're a car guy. Let, let's start there. Were you always... I like, a... I like weird vehicles more than anything. You do. You have a yeah. collection of vehicles that I don't think, uh, you know, we've, we've had Jay Leno on this program. I don't think Jay has the same kind of eclectic collection that Ed Robertson has. I, I've seen a lot of Jay's cars up close and personal because we did his show uh, a number of times. Uh, I was there when he showed up in a steam-powered automobile one time. Another time he came on a motorcycle with a helicopter jet engine yes. on it. He has some pretty cool. Have cars. you been to the Burbank garage? I have not. Okay. Uh, well, we're going to have to work on that. Way. Yeah. Well, I'd love to. Um, yeah. I like a weird car for, for many years. I drove uh, an international harvester uh, travel all, um, which is a, such a cool wagon. I remember I had it at the studio one day and one of the um, studio assistants had to move it while we were recording and he came back in just glowing. He said, "That it, it's like driving an atrium. Because <laughs> it's got all those like massive vertical square windows, yeah, the windows. in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
very iconic. Such a cool car, and I I regret that I had to sell it. Um, you had to sell it. Well, I didn't have to sell it, but it was broken more than it was working, and they haven't made those cars since 1972. I was having to get parts when something broke. I had to get something remanufactured, and that's a big it process. Was just, <laughs> it was silly. It was silly. And finally, my mechanic was like, "Dude, let me find you. You know, let me find you an old Bronco, or let me find you an old uh, Wagoneer, or something where where I can actually get parts and keep it running for you." Right. Um, but the travel all was in the shop more than it was on the road as much as I love that vehicle, you know, I'll tell you a testament to that vehicle. My, uh, my, my former next door neighbor, uh, Corey, lovely guy, his daughter, Emma, um, when she had her high school prom, Corey said that he offered to rent her a limo. And she said, can we rent Ed's car no. instead? <laughs> she wanted to go to her prom in my travel all, which was always in the driveway next to her. And I said, Cor I was on the road at the time. I said, Corey, go knock on the door. The keys are in the box in the front. You can have it. So Corey played chauffeur and drove his daughter and her friends. Imagine the photos uh, of that. To the prom. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What else do you have? You've got a lot of other really interesting stuff. Give me the list. Uh, well, I recently, um, having fallen in love with the Chang Lee from a great Jalopnik uh, story, the Chang Lee, uh, world's cheapest electric electric car. car. Yeah, yeah. I ordered one of those uh, from the Alibaba app, and I'm completely enamored with it. First of all, I reached out via Alibaba. It's one of these things that's you know contact the seller. If you, if you have any inquiries. And so I said, Oh, I'm wondering about uh, purchasing and uh, shipping one of these to Canada. And the response could not have gone better because my, my first correspondence was dear. Hello. <laughs> and I thought I'm in, like, I, I love this relationship already. Um, and it was honestly, it was a total pleasure. Um, the car, if, if people are not hip to the Changli, the car is $900. It was another $200 for the battery. Uh, and then it was about a thousand bucks to ship it to Canada. Um, <laughs> what's the range? I love it. It, it does about uh, anywhere from 20 to 25 kilometers an hour on the flats. And it's got about a 50 kilometer range. Perfect. Uh, what, so what more do you need out in the Canadian a, country? <laughs> Yeah, it's, it kind of functions as a golf cart out right. here at my cottage. I can zip over to the neighbors if I need to borrow eggs or whatever. Um, then I have uh, in the driveway, I've got uh, my wife likes her uh, Porsche Macan Sport. You got to have a pickup truck when you're out in the country. So I've got a big uh, high country um, Chevy pickup. Um, I've got a couple of Audis. I've got a Jeep Wrangler. Um, I like cars. I've got a, a Bombardier um, Maverick 1000 that I put on tracks in the wintertime. And I like I plow a two kilometer walking trail on the lake. I'm a bit nuts. I, I was going to say. <laughs> and, you, and you love Broncos. And, and in fact, you're, you're, you are searching for a particular Bronco. Yeah, I'm my... My middle class upbringing is preventing me from uh, buying an Icon Bronco and the fact that their order times are so long. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really have been looking very seriously at a beautifully restored classic Bronco, maybe from somebody like Classic Broncos. or. Um, but I, there's something about the design of that vehicle oj aside oh, yeah, right uh, the, the low speed car chase has nothing to do with why i love that vehicle you could write a song um, about that i'm sure but honestly one of my main uh priorities in shopping for a vehicle right now is what you can see behind me it's got to fit 
a pinball machine. Yeah, you have a, an um, assortment of pinball machines behind you. You are an avid pinball collector. I mean, I've never met a pinball collector in my life. You have how many? 25? Uh, I have over 50 now. Oh, excuse me. Um, <laughs> my, my information's old. Yeah, I, uh, it's a it's full-on mental illness at this point. 50 pinball machines. You know what machines. the problem was? And I, I should have gone through this with the travel all, but I started buying broken machines and learning how to fix them. And that changed everything as a collector for me. So now I can buy a machine that's not working. I can get it for a great price and I can tinker with it. And it's super fun to troubleshoot it and diagnose the problem, order the parts, get it working again. You know, I, um, this is uh, what I'm sitting in now is an extension on my garage. I have uh, 13 pinball machines in here and I have another five in the actual garage part next door. I have one of those, uh, you know, snap-on tools, uh, massive kind of uh, 12-foot-long tool chests, and there's not a single tool in it. It's filled with pinball parts. Wow. Uh, from coils to motors to node boards to uh, flipper replacement parts, uh, you know, because I'm, I'm pretty remote here. It actually takes quite a while to get any parts that I need. So I'm, when I buy a new machine, I think, okay, what's likely to break on this? And I just order it in advance. So I have quite a stockpile of parts from rubbers to lights to plastics. Uh, and it's all right next door in the garage. As the who said, you're a pinball wizard, Ed. There has to be a twist, but so far, Jason, I have not found it. <laughs> Did you grow up loving cars? Would would your dad drive? My dad drove a Mercury Grand Marquis. Oh, there you go. <laughs> uh, it was as much boat as it was car. You know, my dad. My dad was a, a foreman of shipping and receiving at uh, Honeywell in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. So modest means, um, my mom was a secretary or a, a secretary at, uh, Imperial oil, which became SO petroleum, um, you know, two parents pulling down very modest salaries and five kids, uh, living in the suburbs of Toronto. So there was not a lot of money to go around. Um, my dad drove a Mercury Marquis. My mom drove um, a Zephyr station wagon. Hmm. Uh, well, you gotta and, you gotta have something big for all those kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then when I was, I want to say I was seventeen, my older brother gave me his uh, used Toyota Corolla that he had paid. Four hundred dollars for wow. this is nineteen eighty-seven. I want to say it had the floors had rusted out, and uh, it had plywood floors. It had no starter motor. <laughs> um, it uh, I had to park it in gear, and and like it was just a nightmare at this car completely unsafe i'm i'm sure a friend of his did the safety under the table ergo the um, 400 dollars yeah but i i had to i had to actually recruit friends at school and offer to give them a ride home in exchange for them pushing the corolla in the parking lot so i could <laughs> pop it into second gear and get it get it going cuz it didn't have a starter motor um so what was the I first guess, car you yeah. bought? First car I bought was a 1988 Volkswagen Golf. Oh, I had the same um, car. Uh, I, I worked at uh, Volkswagen in Scarborough, Cedar Bray Volkswagen. The keyboard player in my high school band, his dad owned the dealership. So he gave me a, I wouldn't have been able to afford the car if he hadn't given me such a smoking deal on it. Um, and that was, you know, when BNL first started doing all our early gigs, that was my car. That was a car that would fit a double base. I could pick up Jim Cregan 
And with the seats down, the double base would go headstock up through the front seats. Uh, if people aren't familiar, the double bass is an enormous it's big. instrument. It's a big instrument. Uh, yeah. yeah. And you can put one in a Volkswagen Golf, it turns <laughs> out. When you started making real money, what was the first vehicle that you wanted? It's funny because I remember one time in Vegas, we were hanging out with uh, Harlan Williams, is, is Kevin in our band. The comedian Harlan Williams is, is Kevin's first cousin. Hmm. So they were roommates after high school and Har is a great dude and has spent a ton of time with the band every time we go through LA and Vegas. Uh, he comes and hangs out. And uh, I remember Harlan at the blackjack table because I, I don't know, I dropped 200 bucks or something. And I was like, I'm going to bed, guys. You know, it's I, I got to pull the shoot. I'm going to bed. And Harlan said, you guys are the worst millionaires I know. <laughs> we've been, we've been, pretty reasonable all along i i think i was i guess because of my fiercely humble beginnings i was really self-conscious about not doing anything extravagant yeah so when when stunt came out i was driving a 1992 diesel golf Oh, that so, I there bought you go. <laughs> used in 94 or 5. This is not and Kanye West stuff here. <laughs> it's I'm sorry. It's just not. And so when Stunt came out and uh, one week went to number one, Stunt debuted at number two and sold, you know, it, it sold 6 million copies quickly and ended up selling over 10 million copies. I said, screw this. I'm not driving a used diesel golf anymore. <laughs> so I went and bought a new Jetta. <laughs> <laughs> it was like such a. I remember my friend at the time, uh, Mark Burton, said, Man, if I had your money, the cars I would have. Right. I was pretty, I was pretty boring. It's only in my uh, uh, 40s that I've started to think i could probably have some cooler cars and uh so I've, I've started to explore a little bit now and now i'm looking for something classic and restored um i just did a i did a charity trip a couple of years ago where i was hosting the trip and one of the people who was on the trip was this guy peter clute who uh runs legendary motor car up here in milton ontario people might be familiar with that show and so the the dangerous thing is now i'm on legendary motor cars uh email list and i'm constantly showing my wife maybe we need a 68 barracuda <laughs> like, it's purple it's pretty awesome no more jettas yeah no more jettas here after the break we'll hear more from ed robertson lead singer of the bare naked ladies including life back on the road Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Jason Stein, publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars. From industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back into Cars and Culture. I'm Automotive News publisher Jason Stein in Detroit. Now, back to my interview with Ed Robertson of the Bare Naked Ladies. You're a pilot. I am. You've been a pilot for a while now. Um, yeah. most, most people probably don't know that it's, um, how often do you fly? Not near as often as I would like. I actually, uh, I had a 206, uh, Cessna 206 for a number of years. And then I had a, a 206 on amphibs, uh, amphibious floats, which is my favorite kind of flying. Uh, and I'm just in the market now. I'm looking at a Cessna caravan which is kind of the next size up um i'm trying to decide between a a, a caravan or or maybe something like a a quest kodiak a lot more capable of a vehicle um a little faster can carry a lot more weight which is really important uh in light aviation 
but yeah, it's, uh, I love it. There's, there's nothing like getting into a plane in the city, flying up to the lake, wheels retracted, land on the water. I've got this hydraulic lift uh, dock at the end of my dock, pulls the plane right up out of the water. And uh, it's, it's, it's pretty badass. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not something you can do kind of occasionally. I mean, you know, no. you, you can't get rusty as a pilot, right, Ed? <laughs> no, it's true. And I would say right now I am rusty. Oh. I haven't been flying stay, at all in the last couple of years. Stay away. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know, so when I get back into it, I'm, I'm uh, looking to make a move with the plane. I've already contacted my float uh, training uh, my float instructor and said, Hey, I'm thinking about making a move and getting into a caravan. I'd love to schedule some training with you. So the first thing I'll do before I get back into flying is do a whole bunch more training, uh, with a qualified instructor. Um, it's, it's something you have to take deadly serious because as I often say to people, uh, accidents are incredibly rare in aircraft, but there you, are very few fender benders and you, you had know, one. It's not, yeah, it's not like a car. You can't just pull over when there's a problem. When there's a problem, it's usually a serious one. And yes, as you said, I, I did have a crash and it was, uh, it was really difficult to deal with. Um, you know, I, I thought about, we were luckily okay. We, we broke the plane and broke some trees. Um, a couple of bruises, but nobody was badly injured. Uh, and I'm, you know, incredibly grateful for that, but it, it really, I was already a very conscientious and, and very, uh, fastidious and dedicated pilot. Um, but it, it spurred me to do way more training. I went from a VFR pilot after the accident, I went and did my full instrument training and got my IFR license. Um, and, and just made training regularly much uh, more a part of my flying routine. You still live with that feeling that you had when the plane was initially going down? I'm no, guessing you... I don't. No? Uh, I did for a couple of weeks, and uh, everything was about what if, and uh, what if that had gone worse? What if I'd chosen a different direction of takeoff? What if I'd done this? What if I'd done that? Um, and I really wrestled with it. And finally, uh, the instructor I was just mentioning, Corey Ma, who's a, a great friend, uh, incredible pilot. He said, Hey, I'm going to be in the area. Do you want to go flying? Uh, and this was three weeks after the accident. I was still pretty, uh, confused about the whole thing. And I said, yeah, that, that'd be great. So he pulled up to my dock in a float plane and said, you know, uh, you want to sit captain or you want to be co-pilot? What do you want to do? And I said, oh, no, I'll fly. So we got in, we got, we took off, we we're flying around. He said, do you want to do some exercises? Do you want to do some stalls and steep turns? You want to do that? And I was like, yeah, okay, let's do that. And we went back to some fundamentals, did a lot of, and some of that training stuff is actually really fun stalls in an aircraft are really fun uh steep turns are really, really cool really um, <laughs> yeah i mean you know at a safe altitude and when you know you've got a good engine it's it's fun to do an aerodynamic stall uh and and know that you can recover from it really quickly um after running through a bunch of exercises Corey said how do you feel and i said i feel great but I feel weird about it. I feel great. He said, you should feel great. You're a good fucking pilot. You had an accident. Like you had an accident. And when everything went to shit, you did everything right. And everybody's okay. So stop beating yourself up about it. You had an accident. Um, and I am eternally grateful for that flight. Wow. You know, it, it came at the perfect time for my confidence as a pilot it was right at the time where i could have gone down the road of like i'm never flying never again. doing it again sure yeah and Corey had 
the right instinct. I guess I asked him enough questions about what I could have done differently that he finally said, I'm going over there and getting him back up in the air. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it's something I worked really hard for. It's something I'm very proud of. It's something that requires a lot of knowledge and, uh, and dedication and, 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 uh, high level multitasking and it's challenging and it's also really rewarding, but it's, it's something you can't be half-assed about. For sure. Rewarding, I'm sure, was working with Don Waz as a producer, the legendary. But probably when he brought in Brian Wilson to sing Brian Wilson in his own version to you had to be one of the most unique, meaningful moments of your career, I'm guessing. It was surreal. It was absolutely surreal. And, and uh, Don didn't really prepare us for it either. He knew it would be a thrill for the band. He said, oh, a friend's going to drop by today. Uh, he wants to play you something. And, uh, you know, what are you, what are you going to expect from a friend of Don was? Well, who might that be? <laughs> right. It could be. <laughs> Mick Jagger? <laughs> could be Bob Dylan. It could be Tom Petty. It, you know, who's it going to be? In walks Brian Wilson to play us Brian Wilson's version of our song, Brian Wilson. And at the end, he turned to us and said, is it cool? (laughs) And I said, Brian, it's the coolest fucking thing I've ever heard. (laughs) It's so cool. This kind Um, of Beach Boys-esque, right? That's that's the way he did it. Yeah, it was a totally different take. It, It was essentially, they had reworked the bridge of our song to be the intro uh, into the smiley smile portion of his show and which we reference in the song. Um, So it was kind of this meta musical moment and, and very deeply surreal. Um, And we played Brian, some stuff that we were working on from our new record and he seemed to really enjoy it. And then he left the studio with, the uh, incredible pearls of rock and roll wisdom. Uh, as he walked out of the control room, he said, okay, boys, don't eat too much. <laughs> <laughs> pearls of wisdom from Brian Wilson. <laughs> lay, you, Brian. lay off the smorgasbord. Genius, genius writer, vocal arranger, uh, uh, cultural icon. Who do you want to meet in the music industry, Ed? Um, I have been fortunate to actually work with all my heroes. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, we did Farm Aid with Willie Nelson and got to hang out with him. And just a couple of months ago, uh, Kim Mitchell reached out to me and, uh, asked if I would be a part of the, his induction into the Canadian songwriters hall of fame so i got to kim said i feel weird about just going and talking do you want to play something so i got to play the first max webster song i ever learned on guitar with my childhood hero uh and then a week after that i spent the day in the studio with getty lee and alex lifeson working on a super secret actually non-musical project that I'm not at liberty to talk about uh, right now, but in one week I played with Kim Mitchell, did my first show back from the pandemic in 18 months, and then spent a day in the studio with Getty and Alex. Like, from Rush, yeah. It's a good, it's a good, it's a good life, as the new Bare Naked Ladies song says. That's right. <laughs> you brought it full circle here. <laughs> yeah. Final thing, Ed. I said this at the beginning, it's hard for me to imagine that it's been 33 years because I was a university student in London, Ontario, Canada, when a demo was popped onto my desk in my dorm, and it was the Bare Naked Ladies, and it was a cassette tape that I think only had two or three songs on one side, maybe a couple of other songs on the other side, when you used to have to turn the thing over, and <laughs> and it was the Bare Naked Ladies, and it's an incredible run that you've been on 
we're a long way from those free demo tapes that were being circulated at Canadian universities. Well, I'll tell you, I'll correct you. It was four songs on the one side, oh. and then it was the same four songs on the oh, other Oh, that's side. right. It was. <laughs> <laughs> so your auto-reverse cassette player. Uh, Brilliant. Spin those tracks right back. Brilliant. <laughs> you're, <laughs> yeah, you're a long it, way from it. Uh, it's unfathomable to me. Um, you know, the evolution in technology alone that, has happened alongside my career. I didn't get a cell phone till I was 28, you know, mm-hmm. till stunt came out. I had a number one hit before I had a cell phone. <laughs> um, so, and a yeah, Jetta. It's re- <laughs> yeah. It's really been a crazy run, you know? Um, and, and I, I have to say, I, I'm having more fun now than ever. Like those early times as a 20 year old starting a rock band and touring across the country. That's fun. That's really fun. But now when I make the music I want to make, I've got nothing to prove. I'm playing with lifelong friends that we have decades of experience together and inside jokes and, uh references and and we've grown up together and we still love each other and and respect each other you know that the depth of that relationship is and it still has all of the fun of those early days so it's like it's the fun and excitement of being in a rock band with the perspective and depth and longevity of having had a successful career for this long so you know people often ask like oh you know do you still does it still have the same thrill for you and it's like it's weird to explain but it's more thrilling now than ever before the 16th studio album is detour de force it's out now the bare naked ladies will be on tour as well in a city near you sometime soon and he's looking for an icon Bronco. Ed, Ed or just a beautifully restored original Bronco. I'd be happy. Wonderful. Ed Robertson, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jason. Thanks to Ed Robertson of the Bare Naked Ladies, and thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. We'll see you down the road. Professor Barbara Kahn and Americus Reed talk about marketing and advertising trends, consumer behavior, building a brand, and more on Marketing Matters. Sirius XM Business Radio.